0: Welcome to the Not Your Average My podcast, where four Hmong American women working to move our community forward, one conversation at a time. So tune
1: in every month with Liz, my Nia, Monica, and Katie as we dive into politics, pop culture, and all things related to being Hmong American.
0: Let's get it! Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, We hope you all had an awesome winter break. Um, We know it's been a minute since we've been on air, but we're super excited to get the year started with some special guests today. Uh, We also have a lot of updates that we'll dig into a little bit later. Um, But today, I wanted to get us started by introducing some of our amazing, amazing guests today. Um, We are so honored to have Kaying Yang, and Dua Ta. taking over our podcast today, um, we're super excited to hear all about leadership building and what that looks like as among women, among American women, and really just all the like, you know, different identities that we carry. So without further ado, I'm going to let Dua and Kaying Ying take over for us. So Dua, here's to you. Thank you, Monica, and Happy New Year to everybody. To start us off, I'm just going to say a little bit about where I'm at right now, and um, kick it over to Cayenne and then we'll dive in. So for many folks, I think most people who are close to me know I've since moved to Sacramento. I was in D.C. for probably almost 15 years, working in a number of different roles, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But I have a little girl. Her name is Abby. She's four. We live in Sacramento, and I work for an organization called Sobrado Philanthropies. It's a it's a philanthropic organization in California that does a bunch of different things, which I'll mention throughout. Um, And, and basically what happened is that um, after I was in DC for about 15 years, I decided, Hey, it's time to, move to a space and start something a little bit new and different. And I'm, I'm still a newbie to California. This is only year four for me. Um, I have a pool. That's my most exciting thing that I always shout out to people. When you grew up in the Midwest and you live in the East coast, you do not have access to a pool on a regular basis, but I do. And it's been actually really great for me in terms of both exercise, but just, you know, in COVID something for the family to be able to do together. I'll just say really quickly in terms of my journey, For those who don't know me, I was born in Laos, came to the U.S. when I was two, resettled in Detroit, Michigan with my family, Um, grew up there like many Hmong kids, struggling between um, having multiple identities and not knowing sure where I would fit. Um, While I was growing up, we started a small Hmong youth organization that focused on supporting young people like me with similar experiences trying to find a place to belong, looking for support. Um, I worked for a local home organization, went to undergrad, then grad school, and uh, moved out to D.C. afterwards. And then that really, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but changed my whole career path in life and super excited to be able to dive in today. Uh, I am a proud representative of uh, the Midwest and excited to see that um, we have both Guy Ying and I on today with a lot of experiences from the Midwest. So Many Much more to offer, but I'm going to kick it over to Kai Ying first, and then we can dive in.
1: Hi, Dua. Hi, Manaka. <clears throat> Thank you so much for uh, um, allowing me to be a part of this podcast. I've taken over a lot of stuff. But I've never taken over the pod- uh, podcast before, so this is our first experience. <laughs> I promise you it will not be very violent. It will be very joyful and lots of laughter and maybe some tears because I cry a lot. and I know a Dua likes to cry as well, too, when I cry, so... Uh, I know many of the members of the audience who will probably not know me. My name is Ying Yang, and I am currently living in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm also one of four million people who quit their jobs during the COVID, so I don't have an official title, but I just uh, was previously working with the Coalition of Asian American Leaders as their Director of Programs and Partnerships. I've had a long history of just moving around. Uh, I first came to St. Paul in the 1990s when I was working for the Women's Association of Hmong and Lao as their executive director. I was probably around 25 years old. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. to lead the Southeast Asia Resource Action Center, or CRAC when I was 30, around 30. And after that, I have the I had the privilege of living in Thailand, working for an organization that resettled Hmong people from Watankerbok or Khachor. And after that, I wanted to take a year off. So I moved to Laos, where my husband and I spent, uh, was supposed to spend a year uh, relaxing and just taking time off from our uh, challenging lives in Washington, D.C., but that one year turned into 10 years. And so uh, in 2013, we moved back to the U.S. and after taking two years off in Hawaii with my husband, he he's, he grew up in Hawaii, I decided to move to Minnesota because this is where the Hmong community is, uh, where my Hmong community is, where my parents are. And so I felt um, inspired and just, you know, feeling like I needed to be closer to my community. So I've been living here since 2015. And like I said, recently I quit my job. So I'm Unemployed, happily unemployed, but, you know, a big adventure coming up. So um, today we're going to talk about leadership and um, for and with community. And we're going to talk about several t- topic, but really, you know, intertwine it with our journey uh, about leadership and what does it look like for us in in the experience that we face, but also mentorship. What does mentorship look like in our, our lives and in our community? And how can we work with young people uh, more, but also... How can, you know, older people like me uh, have mentors who are younger, too, so that we are connected and that the intergenerational uh, journey continues in a strong and healthy way? And so, you know, we're just going to have a, a, a conversation, but I, I, w- I wanted to start off, uh, do I talk a little bit about, um, you know, perhaps you can give us some examples of where you have seen your leadership impact and you know uh it positively on social change i know when i left to go work in uh, laos um, in 2003 you became the executive director of the white house initiative on asian americans and pacific islander and that's a really prestigious and uh highest you know level of uh, working with the government and so i think that's a, a uh, something that i would love to for you to talk a little bit about but i know that you also served as the executive director of CRAC. you came from hnd as well too and then now you're a leader in uh, the uh, philanthropic or, uh, organization in in um, in California. And you know I'm throwing out these titles, but I also know that you serve as a mentor and a leader for many people. Um, and so you know, feel free to talk about any of the impact that you've had on, in the work that you do.
0: Thanks, Kaying. I appreciate it. Uh, for for those who don't know, Kaying was the first person to let me sleep on her couch. When I moved to DC, uh, <laughs> she's pretty amazing. People don't let you do that now; just they don't know anything about you, but they um, see your inspiration and your dedication, and they invite you into their home just to sleep on their couch and do whatever you want with their house while they're out. So, uh, for those who don't know, Kaying has been um, a longtime mentor of mine. And I'll just say before I dive into that question, Kaying, that leadership and even being in those roles. I I never thought of myself in that way, particularly. And it's interesting, because now that I'm older, and I've been in the work field longer, I realize there are people who really own, they really embrace what they would call being in a leadership role for good or bad, because, you know, we all have good leaders, and we have those that need some work. (laughs) And for for me, (laughs) it was hard, because, you know, you have a lot of um i came from a lot of baggage of like being the only daughter trying to figure out if it was the right role for me who am i to say i'm a leader in anything and um it wasn't until probably halfway in my career where i would, I, I would say that even people from the outside would say well m- maybe you should just embrace that you are leading <laughs> because you're clearly in the role and um there were many moments that um i loved about being in those roles there were hard moments but there were many moments that i loved so For those who aren't aware, um, I had a long career in DC doing a bunch of different things. I first came as a fellow to Hmong National Development under, many of you know Bo Tao, she was executive director at the time. I learned a lot in those first few years about how hard DC was, but also how scrappy and resilient um, all of the Hmong professionals in DC were. And then I um, moved over to become the executive director of CRAC. This is after Guying had gone um, to Thailand to help with the resettlement of those from Wat Tom Book. And it was it was tough. It was the hardest job and the most rewarding job I've ever had. And after almost a decade of that, I then went on to do work with the White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. So, I'll just say my leadership roles all came some ways in a combination of both being at the right, being in the right place at the right time, having the right relationships, and also having skills. So it wasn't as if it was automatic that I would have gotten those roles, and I struggled a lot in them, learning on the job. I mean, Kai Ying talked about being 30 when she was executive director of Crac I think I was 28. I did, I could barely balance my own checkbook that well, <laughs> so it was. <laughs> it was kind of crazy to be fundraising and supporting an organization of that size. And, um, but I remember very vividly in my head going, I am not going to give up because I don't feel like I can do that. Like I can't just drop it and think that, Hey, I could just go get another job, which I probably could have at the time, but I felt really committed. Like I'm going to stick this out and I'm going to make it work. Um, and, and make sure that I'm committed to what I said I would step up to do. So, sorry, Gang, I don't know if I answered all your questions, but I think one of the things you had been asking me about was also what did I do while I was at the White House yeah. initiative? And many folks are, it, it feels a little bit like a black box, right? What really happens in those roles and behind the scenes? I started at the initiative doing private-public partnerships, so I wasn't the executive director right away. I was an advisor, senior advisors that focused on our private-public partnerships, and that means actually I worked really closely with the initiative to bring in some public, um, sorry, private resources from foundations to align with the public resources that the White House was offering um, and supporting agencies to um, partner with our community. So I actually had a number of projects in which philanthropic organizations worked closely with us to incentivize or offset work that was happening at different agencies. In particular, one of the big learnings from our work there was that um, a lot of our local nonprofit organizations, and this this is what I also realized while, while I was at c they had very little access to understanding how federal grants were made. Most of them didn't have the staff or capacity to apply for them. And one of the main things that I really wanted to do when I came in was figure out how we can make it more accessible and really actually link up direct nonprofit organizations with agencies. So we actually did a series of trainings plus meeting and um, engagements with CBOs across the country. By the time we were done, we probably have done something between three to four in every region. So you know, at least a dozen or so, this was all in the same year, meetings and trainings with different organizations across the country, um, coordinating them with federal agencies so that they could actually specifically apply for strands of federal funds and learn um, some of the ins and outs and do it directly with a technical assistance provider. So we brought in an org that worked alongside us on the ground to give consulting and support to organizations to apply. And then we built relationships between those agencies. I'll just say in the first couple of years of the initiative, we were super proud of our work because for those who aren't aware, the federal government has a lot of money at scale, but it's often not as flexible as small foundation dollars. And just a little bit of foundation dollars go a long way to doing something really creative and innovative alongside those public funds. Um, So I spent a lot of those first years doing that. And then when I was an executive director, we focused really hard on the disaggregated data movement and working with the Office of Management and Budgets, the entity that actually regulates and thinks through how you collect and define data at the federal government level. Unfortunately, we left right at the tail end of that work because of the new administration that came in. But um, there are a number of other exciting things that happened. So I'll, I'll just stop there, actually, because we've we've been diving into a lot.
1: And I wanted to kind of give some context as well, too. Duas started off saying that I let her sleep on my couch, but I just want to say that when I became the executive director of Crac, there were very few Hmong people living in washington d c We had three families that lived in <clears throat> in uh, virginia um, and i I was probably one of the f- very few Hmong who was living and working in washington d c you know do I right that I think the job was really challenging, but it was also extremely rewarding and uh d c is a policy making city it's the capital of our country and I just felt like there we needed to have more Hmong people and Southeast Asian young people working and living in Washington, D.C. so that we can shape some of the policies, no matter how small or how large uh, the policies are. And when I was an intern in, in D.C., it was very hard for me because uh, I didn't have money. I, I didn't know where to live. You know, luckily, uh, the folks at C.R.A.C. provided housing for me. And so I just felt like it was so hard for me that I couldn't really do the work, and this is what 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 we people of color experience, right? You go to a city that is extremely expensive, and you're expected to do work that doesn't pay or pays very little. This is why there are so few people of color in uh, in policy positions, right? And so, through my own personal experience, I felt like I needed to open the door for um, mm-hmm. others, and I it was I I welcomed everyone because I felt that you know we in order for us to survive in D.C. we had to create a community. And so that's how it all started. And uh, I'm so happy that there's still so many young people that's going to Washington, D.C., and I hope that they're building a community as well, too. And then on the topic of leadership for and community, I want to say that, you know, uh, I'm not surprised by your your uh, response, Dua, because I was feeling the same way as well. Too, I feel like I'm I'm not I was never a leader, but I was in positions of leadership, and so uh, it's I don't know why. Maybe it's because we're women or young people that we we can't seem to embrace that. And maybe it's also because in our community, leaders are seen as elders, right? Our elders and their leaders or or their military leaders. And then for a while, their scholarly leaders, right? People who have PhD were leaders. People who had college degrees and so forth were seen as our knowledgeable leaders. But there's a crop of leaders like us from the nonprofit sector and from community organizers, right? And so I feel like today's discussion is mostly about leadership for and, our com- for and with our community through organizing and through the non- nonprofit sector, whether it's social services and, or in our case, public policy, right, and systems change. And so I just want to kind of set that context a little bit because as I hear you speak, I want people to understand that sometimes we look down on nonprofit because we think nonprofits don't pay well. They're really just stepping stones. But in fact, do I, I want to uh, just kind of, um, compliment you that you have been in the nonprofit sector most of your life, and so have I. And I feel that <clears throat> why it's very challenging. We have both learned a lot, like you said, raising raising funds, representing our communities, you know, small and large across the nation, right? And also uh, representing our communities to the federal government. And if people don't see these as leadership positions, then I really feel like our work have not benefited everybody. And also just hearing you describe. The level of knowledge that you have about a certain federal agency is amazing, and I'm just so pleased and proud that uh, you continue to be committed to communities and that the work that you do, you continually center the community. I, I want to continue to say that you know, for for me, as I mentioned earlier, I I still don't see myself as a leader. Even <laughs> recently, I'm I'm on a advisory committee for the New Breath Foundation, and they asked me, what title do I want to use? And because I don't work anymore, I don't have a title. So I said, I don't know, maybe just say community leader. And I felt very uncomfortable with that. But then I just thought, let's just accept that, that they came to me because they see me as a leader. So I should just call it it as it is and claim it. And so in some ways, I feel like it's something that I've grown into and I've learned to be a leader. And, you know, do, I, do you remember that when we lived in D.C., people wanted your opinions and your decisions like five minutes ago. And so you learn to think fast, to think strategically and to think about your community first, not you. right? Uh, whatever benefits, you may not benefit the community and you have to think about the community. When I became the executive director of CIRAC, I made it a point to travel across the country to meet with mutual assistance associations to get to know the leaders on the ground so that when I'm meeting with policymakers uh, and coalition leaders in Washington, D.C., that I knew what was happening in California, what was happening in New Orleans or Texas or uh, Minnesota or Colorado, right? And so I just feel like when you're leading for a community and with community, you must always include them and engage them, right? And so. I just want to throw that in there as well too and talk a little about when we when we are building uh when we are thinking about leadership for our community and with our community how do you build the capacity of others so that we can build power in our community right you talked about uh having engagements across the country ensuring that uh nonprofits can access funding through the federal government or other philanthropic organization how do we do that and uh, how do we know, tell the community or help the community to understand that there's actually a lot of uh, resources, but how do we access that?
0: Yeah, I'll just say when I first started, and part of this might be out of ignorance or naivete, but <laughs> I didn't even know I had it. people who disliked CRAC, honestly. <laughs> So I remember um, feeling very much like you, Kaiying. I want to learn. I want to make sure I talk to everybody. So I would ask for a meeting with everybody. And later on, someone was like, "Well, you know that person doesn't like sea rat." I'm like, "Really?" Because I had no idea. Meaning, I think for me, it was about leaning in with love and grace, and just having a big heart. So maybe we had beef twenty years ago. I, I don't have to carry that, you know, I don't have to carry that for my for the leaders before me. And I don't have to carry that for individuals that who, who, who have also probably been a part of um, not building community in a strong way. And so that's to say, when I was doing the work, I really thought, actually, everybody has good intentions. But they come to this country and this work with so much trauma, that we all have a scarcity mentality, we want to keep and hold our own. And there's nothing wrong with that, because when you come from a place of trauma and war, you want to hold on to what you have. And so, I mean, part of my goal over time was to show everybody we we all can have a piece and we all can contribute, but we can't do it if you're trying to cut me down at the same time. Now, there are going to be people who honestly don't did not care about you know the success of the organization at the time um but for the most part i found that even elders really wanted us to do well they just didn't want to be embarrassed publicly and so i found that over time oh i actually can tell you that you're wrong but i just got to do it in a private way because you actually do want to hear it and you actually want to have a conversation but you don't want to be embarrassed like that's fine it's 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 on me to release the ego of needing to say that publicly, so everybody knows that I feel like I'm standing up for myself. It's on me instead to have a private conversation, so we can be in a better place together. Yeah. Anyways, my point, part of my point going on your question was, I think building with and for community is giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and actually, I I found that most people would pass around information, and nobody actually knew who started whatever rumor or who knew the truth. And why didn't I ever just ask that person? And so I started actually leaning into that more until I hear directly from that person. And until I have the direct conversation, I'm going to assume the best. And when I do have it, I'm going to actually give them the benefit of the doubt to actually be able to answer the question, like not be afraid that if I ask the question, they might get offended because who am I to assume for them who and how they should react, right? So, you know, part of what I think about is one, giving people the benefit out, even elders, everybody who's a part of the work. The other, when I think about the young people is, I think I've said this to you before, Kai-Ying, I always felt like we needed a, a, an additional staff that was a social worker yeah. because of all of the trauma and stress that the young people who came for us had. For all of those who don't know, my actual graduate degree was an MSW. So I was like, oh, this is very helpful because... um Supporting community members and young folks to do this work means actually we actually have to guide them on how everything that they're feeling is okay. And sometimes it has nothing to do with the workspace, but it's still valid and it's a part of the work and we still have to get the work done. So, um, you know, your question around how we build in with community for me was about how you start in an authentic space where you're not assuming and you're not putting ego out there first I will say, us as a team, we were mostly a young team at CRAC. I was just, I was thinking, reflecting back, like everybody was under thirty-five or something, and we had a multi-million-dollar organization. So it made me think, um, it's it's completely possible if you have the will of a collective working together. Yeah. I, I actually just want to say too, for those who don't know, Kayin was a pioneer in this work. And she went out there when actually there was probably very little support. There was a lot of people who support you and there was a lot of people who did not because I saw it firsthand sitting alongside yeah. you in DC <laughs> where often I think you should have had the mic or the platform, but others wanted it in terms of having their own kind of opportunity to build their own reputations. And you often let go of your ego. I mean, I'm talking like 9.9 times out of 10, you gave up an opportunity for yourself to shine so that the whole community can shine. And in particular, I was super proud when you took on the opportunity to go work in Laos and would love to hear about your journey what over there was like, considering that it was a completely different world and space from what we knew in DC. Yeah. Say a little bit more.
1: I would love to do that. And I just wanted to build on the building capacity for others and build power. I mean, I think that. Uh, similarly to you, um, my success has been in uh, relational organizing, mm-hmm. right? And I, I have always seen myself as an intergenerational bridge bridge builder because as soon I as I became the executive director of CRAC, I made it a point to make sure that we had staff who were Cambodian, who were Lao, who were Vietnamese, right? Because uh, the organization had been led by. Uh, a very uh, well-respected Vietnamese-American who had been doing a lot of work uh, internationally and also locally. But it was a small staff and didn't have the capacity to hire more. And I felt like we needed to do that. And I'm so proud and pleased that uh, since I left that that trend continued because now I think that it really does represent the new generation of, um, at least a 1.5 generation of Southeast Asians in this country. And so I think that I learned the relational organizing from our elders because they do it very well. I mean, when you go into a Hmong community, almost everyone knows everybody, right? And when you go to a Vietnamese-American community in a certain level of um, age group, they do know each other nationally as well, too. And I think that that's the power that they bring. And so I want to harness that as well, too. And I'm starting to do that as well, too, because I, I feel like I know a lot of people where a lot of people know me. And then I think a lot of my work has been on the intersection of community organizing, policy, assistance change, and it's got to be led by the most impacted. In Minnesota, we do a lot of work preparing locally or impacted people to testify at the Capitol or to speak to the governor or to go to a state agency to talk about how education impacts them, how the lack of data disaggregation impacts them, how health disparities impact, impact them, right? Uh, I could do all of that, but I think that that's where my leadership has to start, uh, stop, and then their leadership continues. And so I think a good leader and a good organization has to always, uh, again, pivot the power back to the community. And I know that we don't do this enough. I know that there's a lot of organizations that always focus on that singular leader at the top. And I have a lot of criticism about that, but I also know that it's not easy to do it and that you have to invest a lot in staff so that they are trained to make sure that they're not representing, but they're also building, right? And this is really important. And so I, you know, after I left CRAC in 2003, I was feeling complete relief because um, the U.S. government had decided to resettle the 15,000 Hmong people from Watan right? and uh, so I knew that I was going to quit and I was just going to take a year off. I had recently gotten married at that time, and so I wanted to go on a honeymoon, you know, do the thing that normal people do, and um, I got a phone call while I was at the house, uh, at the hotel, I don't know if you know this, and Lionel Rosenblatt called me, he's with, uh, at that time, he was with Refugees International, and he's he's this uh, uh, advocate that had been following the Hmong since 1976, and was working for the Foreign Service in, in Thailand, and so when the Hmong people came out, He was like, who are you, right? Because they only knew about Lao people, you know, because the Hmong were involved in the secret war. So many people, Americans, do not know about the Hmong. And so and when they were all escaping and crossing the Mekong River to Thailand, uh, he was there. And he was like, who are you? And then we started explaining our story. And, And so he's been a part of the journey for a long time, but very few people know about him. Anyways, Lionel Rosenblatt was also very instrumental in helping to uh, we settled the Watangkabokwong. So I went to Bangkok and it was supposed to be for a few weeks and it turned into four months. So by April, it was January. And by April, uh, I said, I got to go back and pick up my husband, right? <laughs> my newly married husband who was living alone in DC with Dua because we had shared an apartment. And so um, I finally came back and picked up uh, my husband, packed up, and then we went to Thailand. And again, I thought it was just going to be for a year after after we settled everybody that we would come back to the U.S. And it turned out to be more than a year. I was there until 2005, I think. And then after all the Hmong were resettled, we I went to live on the Thai-Burmese border and started working with Karan refugees. You know, we could do a whole show just on and the experience there. But I just want to say to you that it was the most exhausting experience I've ever had. And I think a lot of us are still traumatized by it. I know that my colleague Tommy and I talk about uh how we we were working night and day, and we were traumatized because the people were traumatized, right but we had no time to address any of those tra- traumas and 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 do I wanna say to you that this is where we were attacked continuously by Hmong Americans saying that there were a bunch of young Hmong women who didn't know what we were doing uh you know they were threatening us the local people were. Also, unsure who we were, where they were worried that we were taking them to a different uh, refugee camp. Um, And then the women and children, they were the most inspirational. I mean, I've been to that uh, location before, and um, I just have to say that uh, there are more women and children in a location like that. And I think refugees across the world, right, are mostly women and children. And so I was completely committed to them and said that saying that I wanted to help them find safe haven right outside of the refugee camp. And so uh, it was extremely inspirational, but also exhausting. And I learned a lot about uh, all the good and bad in our community um, and survived it. And then when I went to Laos, I basically was on the couch for one year <laughs> because I was so exhausted, but it was extremely rewarding. And I, you know, one of my friends had when you come back to this country, you're going to realize that you just made friends with 15,000 people. And so think positively. And so here I am um, after we lived in Laos for a while, I helped um, started a women's organization there as well too. Um, And the challenge there is really not, not just about organizing, but it's about systems that uh, don't allow you to organize in, in civil, uh, civil society. Right. And so there's been a lot of challenges, but you know, you know, you just really persevere and with determination and inspiration from other people around you, you can do it. Right.
0: What kind of mentorship, leadership support have, had you received that helped you get through that? Cause it, it seems to me like a very, like you had spent a very long time in your career building credibility and then you went overseas and now you're being attacked from all sides. How, um, what do you think got you through that in terms of all the leadership skills you had learned or guidance from others?
1: Well, like I mentioned earlier, I learned from our elders to about relationship, right? So fortunately for me, my dad is very well known in the Hmong community because he was a military leader, right? and so when i uh, when I tell people who my dad was, I think that was kind of like a reference check on who I am, right And then the other thing is that because I do have a lot of relationships that. Uh, people had my back, right? And so even though there was a lot of criticism, I knew that I could call you, right, uh, and tell you what was happening. I was calling Max Zewetski, who was the interim director there, and I was calling Bo, you know, and all of you had our backs. And so every time someone said something that was untruth, you know, uh, uh or dishonest about us, all of you were there defending us, saying that we had long track records of working for community and our interests is about the community, right? Um, I think when I'm in a new space where a lot of people don't know me, for example, like Thailand, then it's all a little bit harder because you have to build trust, you know, and so you had to be consistent constantly. I leaned a lot on my friends and family in this country at during that time. And I think, do I want to mention that the mentors that have been most helpful to me are people who actually respect, uh, well, not respect me, but they really wanted me to succeed as well, too, because they were introducing me to other you know, people who had resources and who had connections, right? So, like I said, Lino was very supportive, right? Um, I remember Karen Narasaki was extremely supportive when I first moved to Washington, D.C. It was introducing me constantly to people and widening my network of um, social capital, right? And so, uh, these are the people that you really, all of you who are listening, should really stick with, right? Because they're they truly have your interest in mind. And maybe you know it goes up and down. At one time, they don't, but. Uh, when they're able to introduce you and to uh, vouch for you I think that's really important and I use that constantly I try to do that for other people as well too how about you how do you how did you lean on your mentors and the people in your life Dua?
0: I mean I don't know how folks feel now but I could not have made it without mentors guides people who to your point Kaying, didn't know me that well but said hey I'll you know, I'll, I'll go out and allege for you, do some extra support for you, introduce you to people. I, I was super hungry for mentorship. I remember going to different meetings and just, you know, seeing an amazing Asian American woman speak. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to try to find a way to talk Mm -hmm. to her and get her contact and her number. And I would spend a lot of time trying to talk to people about, okay, how could I be better? What am I not learning? And what I realize now and later in my career is that um, actually it's what mostly mainstream white folks do. Like They know that they should be seeking out support and advice from those who've had experiences in different parts of the field that they have it. And for many of our community members, and especially our young people, I often feel like um, we're told that we should just know. And I was like, how? We've never done stuff before how, how, and then we have sometimes a mentality to like, we can't tell people we don't know because then it'll look like we don't know. And it's a vicious cycle. Cause I was like, we don't know. Right. And the only way to, um, advance is, um, to say, Hey, I don't know, but I actually really want to learn. And for me, mentorship, I think about it as a, an absolute responsibility that I have in order of in, in terms of giving back, because, um one like i didn't get anywhere that i am today without support from others and so i owe that to community sometimes uh my hubby is always like can you please stop mentoring people cuz you just had a random call and you met somebody now you want to mentor them they didn't even ask me yeah. to mentor mentored." <laughs> anyways the point is that i can see potential in others yeah. and i remember when po- when people saw potential in me even though i didn't know that i had potential yeah oh, okay, just like opened up a whole bunch of different doors. Um, I, I'll also say that uh, there were times when I definitely struggled with folks in our communities where I was lucky enough to have you as a mentor, but there were others who just were not interested in mentoring. And I did have to go to people outside the community, and that's okay, you yeah. know, because um, you need a wide circle of different folks who can jump in. I mean, what are you thinking? What Did, did you actively mentor people? back then um or were you really looking to just support and it ended up being mentoring I yeah. mean how does that actually that kind of relationship get yeah. built you think
1: I mean I see mentorship as both formal and informal right and so uh like you said just seeking out people I was seeking out people constantly too because if I if if they were friendly and were uh, and willing to share with me then I would say hey you know I like to call you regularly to just get some input right and you know, I think mentors are key supporters that provide like advice, but also constructive criticism, right, in a safe place where it's not for anyone to hear. Um, and like I said, their connection to other leaders and funders, especially, um, and they're your confidant, right. And so when I feel uh, like I have self uh, lack self confidence or um, or just unsure about how to handle a tough situation, they're my confidant to just kind of. Through ideas around, right? A lot of times they're just validating and you know motivating me too, right? Because um, in Washington DC, do you remember we had a group of Asian American leaders that were all young, we were all single, right? And I think if it wasn't for that community, it would have been really hard for me, right? To, to be mm-hmm. there because as you know, a young Hmong woman living alone in Washington DC was not the ideal, you know? And it was not a, a yeah. symbol of success in our community. And so I had to always keep that in mind that I, I'm i here not only uh, to do the work, but to also be a good role model. And I that was very conscious constantly in my mind, you know, and lucky me, I was so poor I didn't have money to go out drinking or eating or whatever, so I was always safe in my apartment. But I would have to say that, um, you know, for me, it's always been very informal um, and that uh, we a lot of the mentorship, I think people don't really know that I'm mentoring them, right? Because I'm providing connections to them. I'm opening doors for them. I'm uh, coaching them on how to say this or do that or to be a certain way in uh, meetings, right? And so a lot of times I just take it on. But a lot of times people have called me too to say, I would really like to talk to you regularly, right? And so lately I think I've been taking on mentors as well too because people call And say hey you know can we just talk about these things so I I feel very um, I I actually feel uh, like it's a compliment when someone wants me to mentor them and so even though I feel like sometimes I'm not the wisest elder that I feel like I do have a lot of experience in the nonprofit sector and community work that I could uh, be a mentor Um, and I think this Mm -hmm. this leads to our question about how do you become a good manager as well too because that bleeds into being a manager, right? Because a lot of times, uh, being a manager or, or lead executive director of an organization is really to mentor your staff to make sure that they have the capacity to do that. The work that you're doing, that they're doing, if they're successful, you're successful. Your organization is successful. And as a manager and executive director, your ultimate goal is to make sure that you are accountable uh, to the organization. And to do that, you have to create an effective environment where everyone is thriving, right? And so. Um, you know, I want to make sure that the staff has the, the information and the data uh, and, or the training to do the work that they are doing and do it well. And of course, you want to hire good a ma- good staff, but it's hard to do when we have young people who may not want to work in the nonprofit sector or so forth. So sometimes you hire very green people and you have to manage them closely, but also be a mentor for them so that they can do the work and empower them to do the work. How do you feel about managing? Because I know managing uh people is one of the hardest things to do, right?
0: Yeah, I I think people always think it's 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 exciting and it's it feels glorifying to be an executive director to to be a manager, but I was just telling my husband who's recently become a manager of some other folks that uh, you actually spend most of your day managing and then you do work at night. Yes. <laughs> because actually man- managing is much more than you know, let me delegate these three things to you. But it, it's about teaching the person about how to actually give, uh, see the work in a particular way or give insights or, you know, you're going back and forth on ideas. Um, you don't want to support someone who just does everything you say, carte blanche and never asks any questions. Right. Um, And you'd also don't want someone who's challenged you every two minutes because then you can't get work done. Right. So it's about building a strong person to sit alongside you and the team. And I learned the hard way because I had, I I have been a bad worker and uh, I have had bad managers. So I think in many ways it's, reflecting on those lessons learned that made me think okay how do I proactively think about being a good manager and that does mean a couple of things to your point mentorship is always a part of it for me regardless of age like I manage I could manage someone who's older than me and I hope that at the end of the day they'd be comfortable It there being some form of mentorship in there because it's going to help us both be better the other for sure is um to me there is this balance but it's both important to have self-care and rigor in terms of producing high quality work. And I know you and I have talked a lot about almost maybe to the extreme when we were in DC, we didn't really have work-life balance, no, <laughs> um, which is not what you want either. But also now just with everything you've been talking about, you know, we talked about in the first session around communities organizing around literally life and death issues, yes. um, how we can actually lean into that and not get swept up in the the need for life care, life balance, and recognize, hey, there's a time when we need to push back on the system and we need to like not have every task be done by us. And at the same time, there are going to be tasks that need to be done by us because we either have the experience or the responsibility. And I'd love to hear because you, you know, you're living right in Minnesota and you've been with the strong API organization, how you've seen new and younger folks come into this work and how they're able to balance this or not.
1: You know, to be very frank, I feel like young people prioritize their self-care before they, they even work, right? And so uh, it's been, for me, it's been a great learning curve because I definitely am on the other end, you know, and so I'm learning a lot from the our millennials who, who understand about trauma, who understand that they're experiencing, you know, historical trauma and they're doing a lot of uh, soul searching, right? And so therefore, when they arrive to the work that we're doing, I'm still old school. I'm still thinking we haven't made a dent yet and so we can need to continue to push on, right? But they continuously remind me that they need that they need self-care and I think that that means for me that I also need self-care. So, you know, this past year at Cal, we implemented the thing when we brought in a somatic coach and we did breathing exercises and we did some, you know, team discussions and uh, in my in my um not department but my team Every time we have a meeting, we do you know, breathing before we, uh, as a check-in before we start, right? And through that process and through listening to young people, I started to think more about self-care, but more than that, self-love, right? Which I feel like I never had before. And a lot of it is probably because we're women and women leaders. And so I feel like I had always lacked that. And the organizing that we did have has, has been very impactful for women and children. And men have benefited for for it too. but I know that publicly we have not gotten the kinds of accolades that we deserve. And so I think that that's my trauma is really like, that's still very painful for me that the work that all of us have done has been extremely uh, transformative in our community. And yet we have very little acknowledgement from our community, right? I mean, I, I'm very privileged. I've gotten a lot of acknowledgements externally, but internally in my community, I haven't. And so part of the self-care for me is really self-love, you know, and how How do I practice more of that? But I want to also say to, I think, uh, everyone out there that focuses a lot on self care is that let's talk about self care, but let's not do self care at the expense of community or other people who are not practicing self care. And so, how do we do this collectively? And so, I think for me, if I'm ever at another organization or if I ever lead another organization, I'm gonna try to figure out how to create an environment that is more nurturing, but that it also provides. Um, a shared vision of what we're trying to do uh, that also includes self-care and self-love and not at the expense of our community because so many of our community members still don't understand what self-care and self-love is and so it's up to us to really model that way and so so it's been quite a journey and I'm very pleased to be surrounded by so many young people who continue to keep me grounded and to tell me that I also need to take uh, some time for some self-care and self-love as well too.
0: Yeah. I will say I struggle because I, that comment earlier I had when I was at CREC and we were really struggling in the, in the, I'll just let folks know in the first month, we had to let go of a staff and I had never even managed the organization before. So it was super scary for me about the implications of that. And in my head, I'm like, I am not going to quit. I am going to persevere and push through this. And it, I think about even for my own daughter now, she will never have to deal with, um, well, I think that initial analysis of pushing through came from my own grit and learning as a child, as a refugee and a child immigrants, right? You had to persevere. You had to keep pushing through. I mean, there are times when your parents didn't have the ability to help you. You had to like troubleshoot and problem solve. And I'll just say for my own child now, I want her to have that kind of grit and that kind of ability to push through. And I do worry that she won't have it because she won't have had the struggle that I've had. Now, I don't want her to have the struggle that I've had. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, I'm much stronger for having had them. So to your point on the balance, it's going to be pretty important. And I I, I do think in this day and age when there isn't clarity about self-care for what or uh, persevering through. Hard issues for what purpose, like it really should be to your point, grounded in like community change for the positive building with community and not feeling like it's only on me, but having a a lot of leaders around me. And so that balance, I think is pretty important. It's something I think about all the time for my own child someday, where she'll know the difference between like when you should push through, when you should like push back and say, Hey, no, this is like space that belongs to me that I need. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I totally hear you on that. Are, are there big takeaways that you had um as you look at your own leadership journey? like what what would you say is a big thing you would want to put out there in terms of strongest few lessons learned yeah. or something like that?
1: You know, um first, I want to acknowledge that you've been a part of my journey, and so um I really just appreciate you. Um, and when I got the oh. Bush fellow and I was working on my application, there's a question that says what what is your it's about impact, right? What has been your impact on in in the work that you do? And it was so hard for me to list them, and you came and you just took it, and you 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 basically helped me take stock of the work that I've done in my life, and I feel like I've accomplished so much, and there's been so many witnesses to this, you know. But I think as women and as um, maybe the new generation, like I said, we never claim the world to be leaders, and we never claim the work that we do. And so, my takeaway has been that I need to stop and celebrate more, and to take stock of the work that I've done and the contributions that I've made to my community, but also to myself. You know, I've grown so much, and lately I've been going through this exploration of like spiritual exploration to just find some balance in my life and like to really embrace that self-love. And, you know, the takeaway has been that I was sacrificed for my community. My sacri- my community sacrificed for me as well, too. And I wanted my answers to be really proud of me. And I actually did it, right? um uh Concretely did things, you know, uh, join movements, you know, uh, to end gender-based violence, help resettle refugees and protect immigrants, you know. Uh, work with women across the world, right? But also to bring visibility to the Moon community and to the Southeast Asian American community, with Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, and with the white community. And so I feel like I've been a constant, you know, movement leader in my community. But it took me so many years to get to this point where I can actually say that. And so, I think my takeaway is that I learned it from you. I learned from Bo. I learned from. Jayan and, you know, Sharm, all of our friends who have been by our side until now. And I think that the COVID pandemic has really made me think a lot about what do I celebrate and who do I celebrate? And it comes back to this small circle, all of us in Washington, D.C., who saw each other uh, struggle so much, but we never gave up. We never took a day off, you know, to take care of ourselves. And many times, many, many times in the middle of the night, I would write proposals. I'm thinking it's three o'clock in the morning. Everyone's sleeping here. I'm writing a proposal to make sure that we have funding so that we can pay our staff to do the work that we're doing. And who who, who sees that, right? No one sees that until I tell that story, you know? So I think my takeaway is that I'm actually a very strong person. I've been a very privileged and that I've surrounded myself with really smart, passionate people like all of you. And I just want to congratulate you on the work that you continue to do giving millions of dollars out to a community, not just the Momo community, but every community, and that you continue to be my mentor, and that I'm so privileged, and I feel so loved um, every time I'm with you. And so, I don't know if this makes sense to the audience, but I just wanna say friendship is extremely important, especially women and sisterhood, and that, for me, I've survived because I have, you know, um, sisterhood everywhere I go. And so, um, anyways, that's my takeaway. How
0: about you, Duan? <laughs> No, thank you. You're so sweet. For those who don't know, Kaying and I call ourselves the Cry Baby Club because we cry at everything, but we're crying in solidarity. Um, and what's wrong with crying? Don't I don't want to see any comments in the Not Your Average My podcast about crying. Um, so I just want to say that one of my biggest takeaways and I'll follow in your Lee Keying, is that, um, you are like a pure example of what a leader should be. Meaning, you know, you can be in the next phase of your life and career and you're still saying, Hey, I just realized that I should own my leadership. Meaning your humbleness is what you lead with and not, oh, what you, sh- you know, your accolades and any of that. So I, I, I'm tremendously, um, proud of the fact that you lead in that way. The others, you're always saying, hey, I don't know what, what do you think is the best thing to do? I mean, you have so much good advice, but people honestly um, feel like you're incredibly approachable, like a core part of what I think a leader um, should showcase. And then I'll just say, for me, you were, you know, in this last year, in your next journey, you were doing, we were doing a vision board together. For those who don't know, we were doing Kai vision (laughs) board together. And it feels like you can have many, many iterations of success and career and life and journeys. And it's okay. For me, leadership means letting people off the hook and saying, if this isn't right for you, don't stay in it. Go do something else. Go try something else. And it's pretty freeing to um, believe in that because I I think younger in my career, I just thought, oh, I must – do this one thing in order to live up to the expectations of others. And really it's about freeing yourself from any of those expectations and being true to what will make you happy. Um, even if it comes at a different stage in life or later in your um, years of life. So my biggest journeys are, I mean, my biggest learnings are to to follow those who you think exemplify mm-hmm. all the things that um, I want to be. And you're definitely one of those folks. Kai Ying. So I think that's definitely why we're, um, kindred spirits in thinking about the world and even in friendship yeah. so for sure for sure yeah. um, I'm so happy to do this with you
1: so we took over this podcast and we turned it to a love fest <laughs>
0: <laughs> for our, for each other,
1: <laughs> for each other. <laughs> that was not intentional <laughs> you were saying something too Dua? All right.
0: we want to do something kind of fun and then actually each of us have a secret question which I think let's close out with that yeah. But we want to do a quick rapid fire and a couple things. We we personally have been extremely committed, the both of us, to the community and our careers. But we are actually a lot of fun outside of that, too. Um, and so we're going to do a little bit of rapid fire questions. I'm going to ask, Ying, actually, can you, let's ask. All, I'm going to ask you all the questions first okay. so that we don't so that we can actually keep the rhythm going. And then I'll do um, my secret question. You do your secret question and then we'll just close out with okay. it. Thank you. So what are you reading right now? I'm reading a book called Calling in the Soul um,
1: in a Hmong village. It's by Patricia Simmons. She's a prof- she was a professor at Brown University. And so, like I said, I've been going through this spiritual awakening. And so have been reading a lot about gender and the cycle of life and, you know, shamanism and so forth.
0: Who is a leader you admire?
1: Well, I have no relationship with this woman. But like you said, because she's so down to earth, she can sing, you know. She she's got muscular arms uh, and so forth. That I just admire her so much, but I have no relationship with her. Muscular arms. Yeah. Okay. Michelle Obama. <laughs> <laughs> but in real life, you are my you are uh, a leader that I admire the most. Dua, oh,
0: you are so sweet. Um, I like to be sitting alongside Michelle, so I think <laughs> that's pretty cool. What is your walkout song?
1: Well, I have so many throughout the years, but lately. Salavan Lambong, you know, that song, when, when it comes on, you just want to dance. Oh, my right? God. It's perfect yes. for you. <laughs> and my husband is Lao, so I feel like I want to add a little bit of Lao spice into my life. Yeah.
0: For those who don't know, both of our husbands are Lao. <laughs> I did not copy Ying. Kai Ying. So we both met them in D.C. Did not copy I Kai was Ying. such
1: a good mentor that oh. you did that, too. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Literally copied everything. Okay. In five words, describe the next phase of your life live joyfully
1: be healthy and wealthy is that five
0: <laughs> yes love them what is one Hmong practice tradition thing about the community that you love
1: you know i love Hmong hospitality no matter where i go in the world they are always cooking for me when i'm a guest they offer a room for me i don't have to stay at a hotel i don't think that anyone else does that and so i just love Hmong hospitality and i think we're kind of losing that now, but I want to continue that. I'm not the best practitioner of Hmong hospitality, but I love Hmong hospitality. And especially when they pack you, uh, steamed chicken with rice and quetzal, right. On any trip back home. So Hmong hospitality is my, my, uh, favorite, uh, practice and tradition.
0: Awesome. And my secret question is what advice would you give among women on how to exist in the world and still be true to yourself like how to not fall into the trap of um, following everyone else's expectation
1: you know i think that mong women should be authentic and speak from the heart constantly everything you do should be from the heart and when when we act in this way i think that the whole world also embraces us you know and too many times we're taught that we have to be a certain way don't laugh too loud don't expose you know don't don't expose your sensitivity vulnerability and you know then everybody has this uh, fake you know personality and for me it's always authenticity and leading uh, by uh, leading with your heart right and so for me it's always that and I think people question the authenticity because I've always been like just go up to someone and just talk to them and have a random conversation because I'm genuinely interested in them and so uh, it's worked for me uh, when I uh was recently appointed for the white house initiative on asian americans day hawaiians a woman sent me an email message on facebook saying oh my god you know uh congratulations i've been uh i met you when i was eight years old you came and did a speaking a spoke you spoke at our school um and i still remember to this day and so i messaged her and said i can't believe you still remember me what did i say what did i do and she goes you were unforgettable and I will always remember who you are. And I just feel like it was because when I was very young and I did a lot of speaking engagements, I was very authentic and I spoke um, with my heart and I cried constantly. And I think when I cried, the whole audience cries. Right. And so they saw through me that I could show my vulnerability, but I could also show show my strength as well too. So uh, that's my advice to more women.
0: Love it. For those who don't know, Cain was just appointed. Her life is full circle. (laughs) She was just appointed um, as a commissioner for President Biden's um, White House Initiative on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And she's going to be representing us. Um, We're very proud.
1: Great. So my turn. So my
0: rapid questions for Dua are, what are you reading right now, Dua? I am one of those people who reads a lot of things all at once. But I'm reading three things. Um, One is Crying in H Mart. The second is, it's kind of funny, but I have this part of me that likes reading about witches and vampires and (laughs) stuff. Don't hate. I I know many people have seen, you all saw the vampire movies, but um, it's actually a really interesting trilogy called Discovery of Witches. Uh, Super interesting. It's rooted in history too. So there's a lot of stuff about the 16th century that I knew nothing about. So I love it. And then I think the last thing I'm just reading and picking up new is call us what we carry by Amanda Gorman. So the poet who did the speech at Biden's inauguration and trying to get more into my creative side. Oh, yeah. What is your walkout song? Okay. So I like my books I have a lot of music, <laughs> but um, I have been listening. I've been going a little back back to the past and I've been listening to Fleetwood Mac, um, go your own way kind of super inspires me to you know story of love but also just sometimes you gotta let it go and let it be what it is so um appreciating stevie nicks now and later in my years um more
1: i don't really know if the audience knows who Fleetwood mac is but if not you better go and look it up (laughs) um in five words describe the next phase of your life
0: i want to be creative uh, it's just saying that I'm, I've, I feel like I'm a little bit at a different phase in my life too. Um, for those who don't know, and kaying's mentioning, I've been in the professional work world nine to five for a very long time. Although we always work past five, I am super interested in just being more creative in our next life. Like kaying and I talk about writing books more, writing poetry more, doing other things that bring out the creative side.
1: Can't wait to see what where, where transpires from that. What is one Hmong practice or tradition that you love?
0: I have always thought it was pretty amazing that um, Hmong women can be shamans too. And I think when we we think about all of the patriarchy in our community, we um, often forget that there's this piece of the community that's um, pretty embracing of women having talents and skills in a way that we hadn't thought about. So I've always been super interested and um, really proud that that's been a part of our Traditions and culture, too.
1: Well, you know, I've known you for a long time. You laugh easily. You cry easily. You love people. People love you. But what I would like to know is, what is your greatest love?
0: Mm, like, as in a person? <laughs> or like the thing that I love the most? What is <laughs> whatever greatest you choose? love, However you define it. Ooh. I would probably say for me, it's been storytelling. So. um
1: I had no idea.
0: I feel s- Yeah, I feel super inspired by it. I love to like listen to it and to read it and to be able to articulate. Now now that I reflect back when I actually talk to a lot of folks, I I tell a lot of stories and it makes me feel very moan because it's very moan. But um, but I actually think storytelling is the one thing that I was like, oh, it can just bring it all together. Um, And even for my loves in my life, which are people, my husband and my daughter, I, I think of them in, in the sense of like stories and how they've come into the world too.
1: Wow. I'm always learning something new about you. I had no idea that you want to be an artist Thanks. and that you <laughs> love storytelling. Next time I have to bring you an artist. I don't want to because... draw.
0: <laughs> no, I can't draw worth a crap. Whatever. Just so you know. Artist, but, um, yeah. In, in whatever. I can visualize it in my head.
1: <laughs> so. Then tell someone how to draw. Well, that's it for our takeover. Do you have any closing words?
0: The one thing I do want to say is thanks to the lady of this, the ladies of this podcast. Um, they have all have full-time jobs, but they're doing this on the side. They are incredibly committed and dedicated, amazing. And I couldn't be more proud of all the work they've done to uh, make this podcast a success.
1: And I also want to echo that as well, too. Monica, uh, Liz, Maynia, Katie, everyone behind the scenes, uh, thank you so much for letting me be a part of this podcast. Uh, really special show Uh, I was always very curious about what the uh, not so average Mai was and so uh, now I know and so I want to thank you for um, allowing me to do this takeover with you, Uh, your intelligence and uh, commitment to community just continues to give me confidence and I feel like if I die today that I'm happy that I know you would
0: take over the whole world (laughs) You are ridiculous. (laughs) I love you very much. Thank you. Good night. Thanks, everybody.